Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so, so much for listening. This is our Sampdoria preview episode, and I am joined by a guest to help me out with that. He is a writer for a number of fantastic websites, including Football Italia, Gentleman Ultra, and a couple of others. Steven Kazovitz, welcome to Fortsanopoli. Thanks for having me, Joe. Great to speak to you. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. We've been chatting a little bit offline, so this was the perfect opportunity to get you on the show. Also because you have a bit of a soft spot for Napoli, but I'm going to rely mostly on your Sampdoria expertise for this episode. Obviously, as I said, we're going to preview that match. There's quite a bit to talk about, despite these two clubs being sort of on opposite ends of the table. I want to start with the first half of the season, which obviously has not gone very well for Sampdoria. The Blue Cherkati come into this meeting sitting third from the bottom of the table with a record of two wins, three draws, and 11 losses. Now, Sampdoria have been dangerously close to the relegation zone two out of the last three seasons, right? I think... You finished 15th in 2019-20 and then also last season. But this season seems to be going even worse. You know, what's going on? And I appreciate it's not a simple question to answer, but there's probably a number of reasons why Sampdoria find themselves in the position that they're in at the moment. I think for many people that follow Sampdoria, Sampdoria fans, or even people who have them as their second team, this has been one of the worst seasons for Sampdoria in many years. And I guess there are a number of factors that have resulted in just miserable seasons so far. The takeover talks in the background and Ferrero has made things 
very difficult in terms of recruitment, buying players, and basically Sampdoria don't seem to have any budget at all to buy anyone. So even just now they're reliant on loan deals, swapping players, getting players that are really kind of low value. It's been, yeah, it's been a really quite a miserable season. From last season, most of the squad actually hasn't changed. It was an ageing squad with many players in their 30s and a number of players who are probably not quite good enough for Syria, if I'm being brutally honest. And the lack of money available has meant that there's been no real change. And even players that were considered promising, like Sabiri, who we saw from Morocco in the World Cup, he, I think, has fallen out with Stankovic and he hasn't played much. Qualiarella, the great Qualiarella, has been injured and age finally seems to be catching up to him. And there's a number of players like Manolo Gabbiadini, who scored last week, who is one of these players that he seems to score in bunches, but he's never been a reliable goal scorer. But I think yeah, the, generally the takeover talks in the background, the lack of investment, and they made such a poor start that it was kind of a carried on from last season. And as they failed to win, they get stuck in such a rut and they became, I guess, beleaguered, confidence completely drained. And I mean, if you've watched any of Sampdoria's games, the playing style, it seems as though there's no cohesion, there's no real style of play, virtually no goal threat. As you mentioned in the statistics, they've only scored eight goals in 16 games. And prior to this Sassuolo game, they'd only scored six goals which seems incredible, <laughs> even by Syria standards. And I mean, there's been a lot of goals in Syria. So I think, yeah, a number of problems have come basically the same time. I want to focus a little bit on that ownership situation that you mentioned. This has been sort of the big story around the club since late 2021, yeah. where the former president of the club, Massimo Ferrero, stepped down as club president after he was arrested on allegations of fraudulent bankruptcy with a bunch of other companies that he happens to own. Not nothing to do with Sampdoria itself, but he owns, I think he's a filmmaker as well. And he has a bunch of other companies. There was some shady financial activity going on. He was, I think, released on bail and he's doing house arrest, I guess, because of his age. And it was near the holidays <laughs> was what I read. I guess, <laughs> I guess if you're going to get caught for a crime, Make sure you're caught during Christmas. <laughs> Get off a little bit easier. But um, the crazy thing in all of this and, and what's, I think, frustrating, I imagine, a lot of Sampdoria fans is that he remains the major shareholder, the majority shareholder. Or his company is the majority shareholder that he controls. And as far as I understand, through that majority interest, he's really been making it difficult for the club to sell What's the latest on, on that whole ownership situation? I mean, this is kind of a situation that could only arise in Italian football. I think that this continued ownership kind of struggle, the president of the club gets arrested. And as you see, the key word, I guess, is yeah, allegations of financial irregularities and financial crimes. Then he's released from jail and he apparently refuses to accept any of the possible takeover offers. This week it was reported in several different places that the investment firm Merlin Partners pulled out of a potential deal to take over Sampdoria. And 
their plan supposedly was to restructure the debt, which I think it was announced was 90 million euros. And last season, there was a 24 million loss. I think Sampdoria has been valued at 40 million euros, which seems an incredibly low number for like a historic club, albeit not one of the biggest clubs in Italy, but still a big club in terms of their fan base, their stature. They're still in the top 10 in attendances, although it can be difficult to properly measure attendance numbers in Italy for various reasons. So it seems a kind of desperate situation for Ferrero, who was a self-admitted Roma fan, who even mentioned Sampdoria players, Mikel Damsgaard. He would possibly be a good acquisition for Roma. He's a very ostentatious, loudmouthed character who always likes to be in front of the camera, likes to make a show in front of the fans. So the company that owns Sampdoria is still owned by his family, as far as I'm aware. It's difficult to do research on this because, as you know, in Italy, there are so many different sources that you can find. And even when you think you've found a source, you can find another one that contradicts it. So this week, this investment firm, Merlin Partners, offered to take over Sampdoria and to restructure the debt. They had done a similar thing at the French club Lille and turned their situation around. I mean, Lille seems to have sold players to many big clubs, including Magnan and Leal to Milan. So they seem to have completely reinvigorated that club and they had a plan which was detailed to do the same at Sampdoria. However, because of Ferrero or his family or this holding company that owns Sampdoria or has the majority share, this deal basically broke down. It's not to say, I suppose, that the deal might not come back again because in Italian football, as you know, Things that seem to have collapsed or failed can suddenly be resurrected again miraculously. I mean, I guess this is one of the frustrating things and the joys of Italian football that it's so unpredictable that you never know what's going to happen. I mean, next week there could be an announcement that this uh, Qatari Sheikh that was (laughs) for weeks, in fact, for months, this Qatari Sheikh was mentioned as, oh, I've fallen in love with Genoa, the city. I've fallen in love with Sampdoria. And he was supposedly going to offer 40 million euros to, to buy the club. So I guess we never know. We never know. But I think something has to happen sooner rather than later, because with the current squad that Sampdoria has, and I'm sure we're probably going to talk about some of the moves that have been made already and will be made in this transfer window. With this current squad, it looks incredibly difficult for them to survive from what I understand, you know, a trustee has been appointed, Gianluca Vidal, and part of the challenge is that he's been appointed to sell the club, and part of the challenge is that if he sells the club, then Federo gets nothing. <laughs> so I think that may be motivating his not showing up to these meetings. They were supposed to meet on the 14th of December, then the 19th, then yesterday the 5th, and now it's pushed to the 10th, and the, there's a couple of meetings it's almost like they're anticipating he's not going to show up so they've booked a bunch of meetings the 10th the 20th february 2nd there's been plenty of interest and to your point i think it's because even though the value of the club today is low that's actually an attractive thing for a potential buyer and even though the club has struggled in terms of its play and and where it is in the table it's such a strong brand as far as Serie goes that you can see why there might be so much interest from potential buyers who can think of, you know, once we restructure that debt and, and sort out the finances, if we can stay up, even if we go down to SETI B for a little bit, 
this can become a, a very profitable venture. And as you said, there have been a number of names that have been linked to the club. You mentioned the Sheik uh, Khalid Faleh Althani, who's linked to the Qatari royal family. Not the same Althani who's been interested in buying Napoli. That's Ahmad bin Hamad Althani. <laughs> but yeah, he's you know obviously royalty. There's money there. James Palotta, former Roma president, his name has been thrown out there. And then you mentioned Merlin Partners. Their co-chief investment officer, Alessandro Barnaba, issued a statement on Friday. That was the one that confirmed they're pulling out of the race. He said, with great regret, I have to note that there was no interest on the part of the current owners in finding a solution that would have allowed Maryland to carry out the rescue and subsequent relaunch of Sampdoria in the absence of the conditions deemed necessary by us, on which we have worked hard in recent weeks. First of all, the reduction of the share capital due to losses and debt restructuring plan. We must note that there are no conditions for us to be able to subscribe to the capital increase that the company needs. And we are therefore forced to give up what would have been a difficult new challenge, but one of great charm and importance. So that's obviously a disappointing statement to hear from from the perspective of Sampdoria fans, especially as you mentioned with everything that Lille did. It's kind of a similar circumstance, right? Because Lille's previous ownership, actually probably worse in terms of the financial situation there, they had buried themselves in so much debt that they were forced to just every year sell their best players. Victor Osiman is another one yeah, to add to the yeah. list that you mentioned. It just so happened that they are very good at scouting. So it seems like every year they have players that they can sell for big profits. And even then, it took a really long time. But yeah, I think... To your point, the fact that there isn't just an owner in place means there's probably not much of a project, there's not much money, and and that really makes things difficult for the performance of the club on the field. I mentioned Sampdoria's record earlier. It didn't help, I think, that Sampdoria had a difficult schedule to start the season. I think it was Atalanta, Juventus, Lazio, and Milan all in the first six matches. And the results were a little bit unusual because... Sampdoria managed to get draws against Juventus and Lazio, which are actually very good results, but then losses to Salernitana and Hellas Verona, who are teams you would probably expect to at least get some points from, maybe not win both matches. Then after the loss to Milan, Sampdoria lost to Spezia and Monza, again, two sides you would hope to get some points from. That marked the end of Marco Giampaolo's second stint at the club. Dejan Stankovic was hired as his replacement, He came in with not a whole lot of experience prior to this role. I mean, he had assistant roles at Udinese and Inter for a year each. He coached at Red Star Belgrade for three seasons, and he won the league all three seasons, which is a positive, but it's basically a two-team league, and either Red Star or Partizan Belgrade kind of alternate. They take turns winning the league over there in, in Serbia. So this is really Stankovic's, actually it is Stankovic's first manager role in one of Europe's big five leagues. How are you feeling about that appointment through the first eight or nine matches in charge? I mean, I guess after Gianpaolo, anything would have been an improvement in some ways because it was really, they looked so demoralised that it was almost as if they'd lost games before they even, even the games even started. It was really difficult, I think, to attract a high-profile coach. All the names that were connected to Sampdoria were pretty uninspiring to be honest and as you rightly said Stankovic he has coaching experience obviously in his own country but it's maybe not as competitive as some other leagues although as you say to win the league is pretty difficult because 
any of the big clubs in any smaller country, if you can put it that way, there's always pressure to win every game. So I suppose the fact that he did achieve that is obviously counts for something. He obviously knows Italian football very well. He was a pretty successful player. It's difficult to say if he's been successful or not so far. I mean, there are only two wins of the season came under Stankovic against Cremonese and Sassuolo, and he drew against Bologna in his first game. Other than that, they've lost every game at home. They lost against Roma, Fiorentina and Lecce. And as you said, they've lost against almost every other smaller club or club in and around the, the relegation zone. I don't know if there's a really defined style of play under Stankovic. I mean, the one thing that he does have is emotion. And in any of his interviews, he talks extremely well and he speaks with a lot of you know conviction and he says all the right things. But transferring that to the you know, the actual games themselves is another thing entirely. He seems to be a great motivator. He's got a lot of passion. But I guess there's only so much you can do with a set of players that have been so ground down by defeat after defeat. And he doesn't have a huge amount of options. And as we enter the Napoli game, his options are reduced uh, even, <laughs> even further. I don't know. I mean, it, the results have improved, but the style of play... I'm not sure. I mean, in the first half against Sassuolo, Sampdoria were, I mean, they were pretty good. But the second half, it was kind of back to old habits and defending for their lives and basically pinned back for long periods. Um, he, he's kind of tinkered with the formation a bit. But generally, if you've had the kind of, uh, I don't know quite how to put it, but it's not a pleasurable experience watching Sampdoria. I mean, it's been pretty dire because most of the time, Basic elements of play, teammates have not been able to find each other with the ball. Defence has been just full of holes. The the combination of Omar Colley and Ferrari was pretty disastrous. Ferrari's now gone to Cremonese, Colley maybe going to Cagliari. The midfields, kind of no cohesion and no kind of dynamism. Juricic has been pretty good, I would say. And then nobody could score any goals, basically because the standard of crossing and the setup play was really non-existent. He's found it very hard to instill confidence into a group of players who've been utterly kind of bereft of everything. I've been mean, watching Sampdoria sometimes as if the players have never met each other, which I know is quite brutally harsh. But some of the games have been kind of torture to watch, really. The Lecce game, especially before the World Cup, it was just disastrous. I mean, Lecce have been very good this season, I think, in certain games, one of the surprises of the season. But the manner of the goals that they conceded were just so poor. And that's one of the big things that Stankovic has obviously identified that immediately and he's taken taken steps to kind of rectify that. Amione came in, who's been kind of slightly over-aggressive at times, but he's brought kind of more energy. Uh, Neutic has come in from Udinese, who made a pretty decent debut considering. But I think defence remains the biggest problem. I mean, 28 goals conceded. When you look at the goals scored, it's absolutely terrible. The worst in the league and... Every area of the field, I think I think I wrote in one of my articles, it was just discombobulated. It just didn't work for whatever reason. And that's one of the things that he's obviously had to address. I mean, if you watch the, the training ground videos, he's a really great motivator. Yeah, and he, he's certainly got lots of passion. But you're transferring that into actually the, the match day has been the biggest problem so far. Yeah, I mean, the loss to Lecce may feel a little bit better after they just beat Lazio. I mean, they also took points. One of the three teams that took points away from Napoli this season. So on their day, they're a difficult team. But I appreciate the fact that 
they can be good at the same time that Sampdoria is also very bad. <laughs> the the appointment of Stankovic, I don't know if it's because they have a very similar personality, but it does remind me a little bit of Gattuso's appointment both at Napoli and at Milan before that. Now, obviously, those clubs are not fighting for survival, but just he seems like the right personality to bring in to put out the fire. You know, the first thing you do when you're in that situation is you fix the defense, stop the bleeding, stop or the leaking or however, whatever metaphor you want to use, you know, fix the defense and then work your way to the front and hopefully start to get some results. It's ironic that he doesn't seem to like Sabiri because he seemed like a legitimate goal scoring threat when he did play, especially from the set piece. Uh, You know, he's the type of player that scores free kicks like he's taking a penalty kick almost. So we'll see if he can get Sabiri back into the squad. You mentioned the Sassuolo match. I thought Sampdoria looked really good in that first half. Would you say that was potentially their best half? Obviously, the second half was kind of the opposite and Sassuolo dominated. But that first half was actually pretty impressive. Definitely. Yeah. Up until the first the first 20 minutes was the same kind of lack of cohesion. But after that, they got two goals, a rare Tommaso Ogello goal from distance, Gabbiadini overhead kick, and obviously absolutely full of confidence and they could have gone on to score a lot more goals. The second half, they kind of reverted to type and could have defended a lot more. But yeah, the first half was one of the more impressive performances of the season. As you said, though, in in the first part of the season, they managed to draw with uh, Lazio and Juventus. And in both of those games, they actually had some decent spells. I mean, the opening game of the season against Atalanta, they were actually quite good and they were denied a penalty. Um, Controversial call, Larice. And I think that kind of thwarted things a bit because if they'd won that opening game, it could have obviously been a pretty different outcome. It's difficult to say because for anyone who's followed Sampdoria or has an interest in them, the season has been so miserable that expectations have probably dropped to the extent that you really don't, you don't expect much, to be honest. The fact that Gabi Adini actually scored a goal and he tends to score in bunches is quite a big thing. I mean, he was capped by Italy recently, which seems quite stunning, you know, considering like his lack of goals and form and he gets injured easily. But the fact that he scored is a, a definite positive sign. And the signing of uh, Sam Blammer's loan signing from Empoli seemed to be a semblance of a partnership there. And maybe he could offer something different. He's really quite a good technical player. Maybe hasn't got the opportunities that he perhaps deserved at Atalanta or Empoli. So that could offer something different. And there was definitely signs of something there, which, yeah, I mean, defence and attack have been the biggest yeah, the biggest kind of deficiencies. Yeah, Gabbiadini almost scored a second one in the in the match, and yeah. uh, Consili made a, a pretty good save there. Yeah. I actually liked Augello's goal the most. Even I mean, the overhead kick is always the flashy <laughs> goal, but you know that first time low strike into the side netting is it was a very sweet hit, and he had a nice little moment there with Stankovic, uh, kind of you know embracing each other on the sidelines. So so that was good. If you want to take a silver lining from the second half, I think it would be that despite Sassuolo kind of pouring on the pressure, Sampdoria resisted very well. They defended well. Even the goal, I mean, it was one of these weird penalty kicks that's awarded right on the corner of the box and the attacking players not even, you know, he was running towards the corner flag, but technically he was fouled in the area. So they 
Sassuolo got the penalty kick and Berardi converted it. That was probably Bartosz Brzezinski's final match this season for Sampdoria. We mentioned him earlier. He was, I think he's in Rome now. They're saying he's going to take his medicals either on Friday or latest on Saturday. Despite the ownership situation, Sampdoria have been fairly active for a January transfer market. We've already seen a loan swap. You mentioned Sam Lammers. He was swapped with Empoli for Francesco Caputo, which... As you said, it improves the partnership, and also you mentioned the age of the club. That brings the average age of the club down, so that's promising. I don't know if there's you know redemption options or anything like that. Bram Neutink also joined from Udinese, although I think he was the one who conceded the penalty, but again, kind of unfortunate. I touched on the Berzinski swap in a previous episode, and we've chatted a little bit about this offline, but... You know, what can you tell Napoli fans about Berezinski and, and what he may or may not be able to offer for Napoli? It's quite a curious signing, to be honest, I think, because I think he's kind of an average player in all regards. I wouldn't expect much from him, honestly. He's consistently played for Poland, but I'm not sure if that's down to whether Poland are struggling for options at right fullback or right wing back. And he's been Sampdoria captain and played for Sampdoria consistently. But he's been part of a defence that's conceded so many goals. And he's not an inspiring player for me. Like he really is, uh, he's been a weak point with Ferrari and Colley in defence for Sampdoria. I don't know if mediocre is the right word, but he's an average player in all regards. Like I don't think he's particularly going to offer any great kind of offensive threat. I mean, he's decent defensively. It's hard for me to muster any enthusiasm about him. I think as a backup for Di Lorenzo, you know, it's a decent option, but the the what nobody wants, obviously, is Di Lorenzo to pick up an injury and he looked as though he, you know, he'd get some pretty robust challenges in the Inter game. I think he's a decent backup, but he's not somebody that really anyone should expect much from. I don't know if I'm being overly harsh. Maybe go into a new environment, into a successful team. He's with his international colleague, Zielinski. Maybe that will bring out more in him because, I mean, certainly in previous seasons, he actually provided the cross for Qualiarella's amazing back heel flick against Napoli, which was a really sore one for all Napoli fans, but for Samp fans was one of the, the great goals in recent times. He is capable sometimes of decent crosses and it is a deal that surprises me because I think Zanoli is actually, and we talked about this, I think, on Twitter, that he's, I think he's actually pretty promising. And obviously he's not the finished article. He needs experience. He needs games. Hopefully he gets that as Sampdoria. But anytime I've seen him play, I've been quite impressed with him because he's, he's quite quick, tall. He seems pretty good defensively. Berezinski, I just, I don't know. I kind of just don't think it's the right move. I was really curious about it, to be honest, because... There are so many other right-backs out there. Uh, Juranovic of Celtic, who played for Croatia at the World Cup, I thought he would have been a decent option. Maybe he costs too much money or maybe he, he's going to go elsewhere. I saw Monza interested in him as well. But there's so many other right-backs that offer more going forwards than Berezinski, which for me, he doesn't quite suit Napoli's style of play, I think. But that's just my opinion, though. I could be completely wrong. <laughs> you know, the more I think about this transfer... I almost wonder if it's more about Zanoli than it is about Berzinski. Based on the rumors, it seems like it's a similar transfer to that Empoli swap, like a loan swap in either direction. We'll see if there's any options to buy or obligations to buy. Certainly, 
Sampdoria would be more interested in an option to buy Zanoli than I think Napoli would be in Berezinski given his age. And then from the Napoli perspective, I think, at least judging from the fact that this transfer might even happen, I think they probably don't have the confidence in Zanoli yet. He's played a little bit here and there. And we, you and I both know in Serie A, youngsters don't exactly get that many opportunities. So I think from the Napoli perspective, they might be thinking, okay, here's an opportunity for Zanoli to develop because he may play more frequently at Sampdoria than he would at Napoli. And then Berezinski just gives you a little bit of extra experience. So maybe Spalletti might have a bit more confidence. They definitely are not making this transfer thinking if Di Lorenzo gets hurt, then we have a suitable backup. I think this is more if we need to rest Di Lorenzo on occasion, maybe, you know, a Coppa Italia match or instead of playing him the full 90 in every single match, we start taking him out when we have a two goal lead we take him up for the final 15, 20 minutes or something like that and just give him a few minutes of rest in that regard. And then the other thing is, I mean, it's so hard to judge what a player is capable of when they're playing for a team that has struggled so much. So maybe Spalletti has seen enough from the footage or the, the scouts have that they think that there's enough of a player there. And and the one example that I keep comparing it to probably just to make myself feel better more than anything else is that (laughs) no one really gave Juan Jesus much of a chance when he was signed from Roma and he's turned out to be you know a pretty decent player playing in that kind of backup role he even started quite a few matches last season because of injuries and he held his own so I mean that's the hope that I'm gonna hold on to going back to that Sassuolo win Perhaps what was most impressive about that victory was the fact that Sampdoria were missing so many players. Juricic was suspended due to yellow card accumulation. Sibiri, I think, returned to the squad very late because he had COVID after the World Cup. And then there were a number of players who were out due to injury. Can you give us a bit of an injury update? And I appreciate that could take a little while. I mean, it seems from the Sassuolo game... Stankovic will have to reorganize his, his entire defense because of the back three that started, Berezinski is going to Napoli. Neutink will probably play. Amioni is suspended because he picked up a yellow card in that game. So I guess the likelihood is that Jason Marigo and Nicola Muru will play because Sampdoria simply don't have enough strength and depth. I mean, they even promoted three Primavera players into the squad because they didn't have enough numbers. Sabiri, as you say, I don't know if he's fit enough to play. The mysterious Harry Winks returned to training this week, but hasn't made an appearance yet. (laughs) So he's clearly not going to play. Qualiarella is injured as well. I mean, Sampdoria kind of down to the bare bones. Yeah, there are some players that uh, very started against Sassuolo, but I don't know if he's a a regular starter because of Juricic. So maybe Juricic will come back, possibly. And Omar Colley is on the verge of a move to Cagliari, but given it's Italian football, we don't know if he will miraculously be present because basically there's no other alternative. So maybe he'll be sold after the game or loan deal after the game. But I mean, as it looks, Sampdoria really don't have a lot of defenders. Of course, they've got Ogello because uh, Stankovic played a 3-4-1-2 formation, but Ogello was more of a left wing back. So whether he alters his formation because, let's face it, Napoli are going to have majority if not all of possession so maybe he goes to a back four or a back five it could be the game that he changes his formation completely Larice could also fill in I guess at fullback or wing back 
There's even the possibility, I suppose, of Thomas Rincon moving back from midfield into central defence, but I think that would be a last resort. But yeah, Sampdoria, their squad is kind of stripped down to almost uh, nothing, certainly in defence, which I think could be the big factor given you know, Napoli's pretty spectacular attack. We didn't see it against Inter because of you know, various reasons, but I think there is every possibility that you're going to have one-on-one duels or matchups that favour Napoli completely in this game. Curiously, there seems to have been a lot of knee injuries at Sampdoria, which is probably just a coincidence. But, I mean, Andrea Conti is a guy that always yeah. has had knee injuries. Manuel De Luca had surgery for a torn meniscus in his left knee. I was really saddened to see uh, that Qualiarella hurt his knee playing in training in Turkey or whatever on retreat. It seems like Sabiri will probably come back. I was not aware that Omar Kali was linked to Cagliari, so that's that's one that... I mean, we saw Berzinski play against Asuolo despite being linked to Napoli, so maybe they do play him. And then Winks, to me, it sounds like it's probably too soon. I'm not even sure that he's completed a full training session yet. I, I think he did most of a training session either yesterday or today. Maybe by match day he will have, but is that enough to play him? Probably not. Maybe he suits up and you know is an option off the bench. We saw in the Sassuolo match that Emila Dauro took a bit of a knock to the head. I imagine... He finished the match, so I imagine he's still going to play. He's not. It would be really interesting if Contini actually played in this match. Yeah, <laughs> that that's, yeah, that's there, yeah. exactly. That's the other big one that he was down on the ground for quite a long time, Odero, and he he's arguably been Sampdoria's best player. I mean, without him, they could have been absolutely thrashed in many games. So it would be very interesting if Contini plays, and also if Zanoli plays, because they really have such a lack of options that. I don't know if it's possible for him to come in immediately or if Napoli would allow it or if the the deal allows Berezinski to play potentially, although that probably won't happen because Di Lorenzo will start. I guess, yeah, there's quite a few interesting possibilities, but it'll be a heavily weakened Sampdoria team, which I think can only favour Napoli. I mentioned Contini, just a quick side note. Uh, because you mentioned Stankovic's successes. One of them that you left out was the uh, Coppa Italia win over Ascoli, which I actually watched this match, believe it or not, uh, because at the time I was thinking of writing a piece on Continia. Now I actually am writing it with these rumors of him potentially returning to Napoli. And that was just a, a crazy match. I, I don't want to give away the punchline, so I'm not going to say how it ended. But, <laughs> you know, it, maybe it would be really cool if Contini could get a match in there uh, before a potential return to Napoli. I think you kind of covered the starting lineup there. You didn't really mention the front three. Assuming it's that 3-4, is it a 3-4-1-2 or a 3-4-2-1 that Stankovic that has been playing? I think it's a 3-4-1-2, but you're right. right. It could change and it, possibly the... The defence could change. So I guess we're looking at Audero and goal, Neutink with Muru, Murillo or Colley in central defence, Larice, Rincon, Vieira, Augello, and then the front three, either Sabiri or Vere with Gabbiadini and Lammers up front. I'm not sure if Stankovic will potentially change to a more defensive formation, but Sampdoria are at home. And it's going to be a huge occasion for many reasons. So it seems counterproductive to go out with a defensive formation 
completely because it will only lead to one thing, I think. Yeah, and what I can see happening is I can see it lined up as the same 3-4-1-2, but in defense, you just drop that number 10, and now you're basically defending in a 3-5-2, which, by the way, was very effective when Inter used it against Napoli. So that might be a way where you're not really tinkering too much with the lineup, but still making it potentially a little bit more defensive. For Napoli, there are no major injuries to report, which in itself is a small miracle considering Napoli's last couple of seasons. The only player that missed out on the Inter match was Gianluca Gaetano. He had a bit of a stomach bug, which he's recovered from now. There was some speculation that Javicha Karaschelia might have picked up a knock in that Inter match because they roughed him up pretty well, but turns out those were just rumors. It looks like they've been dismissed pretty quickly and he should be in the squad. You kind of already summarized the the Sampdoria lineup, so let me give you my thoughts on Napoli starting eleven, which I think will be very similar to what we saw against Inter. I'm not expecting too much change. If we think of January, especially after this long break, as you know the second start of the season, then what coaches typically do at the start of the season is they play the same players because they want them to develop chemistry and and especially after that loss, I think Spalletti will want that even more so. And then I also think that from a psychological standpoint, he'll want to show confidence in that same starting 11 and give them an opportunity to redeem themselves. So I'm only expecting a couple of changes. In both cases, I think it's just positions where we have the depth that given the short rest between matches, you might as well make these changes. So I think we'll see Mario Rui start over Matias Oliveira at left back. And I think we'll see Chucky Lozano start over Matteo Politano on the right wing. But everything else I expect to be the same. So Meret in goal, Kim Minjay and Amir Rachmani at center back, Di Lorenzo at right back. Same midfield three, which really struggled. But I think, you know, again, against a weaker opposition now, an opportunity for those three, Lobotka and Gisa Zielinski, to redeem themselves. And then Kavada on the left wing and Osimen at striker. So... When we spoke earlier this week, you said you didn't mind making a prediction because it would be the shock of the season if Sampdoria don't lose. <laughs> Sorry, if or if Napoli don't win. Since then, we mentioned that you know Napoli lost their first match of the season. Inter, Sampdoria got a big win over Sassuolo. Do you still feel like a Napoli victory is a, is a foregone conclusion, or do you think there was enough from those two matches that perhaps Sampdoria might steal a point or even three? It's difficult because predictions are doomed to failure, as you know. I think whenever I read on social media, people making big predictions, I just kind of think I don't want to comment or I'll just stay out of it. I think it would be a big shock if Sampdoria won. I mean, I think it would be pretty astounding if Sampdoria are able to win against the you know the league leaders, the best team in Syria, all season, most entertaining team. I guess it could go one of two ways. One is that Sampdoria just pack the defence, defend for a draw, and Napoli dominate possession. Yeah, I kind of think Sampdoria's best hope was a draw. I can't see Sampdoria winning, but I think it, it would be silly for me to make a real prediction because it just comes back to you and people people might think, who's this guy? What's he talking about? I would expect Napoli to win, but in Italian football, you never know. I mean, there's going to be a lot of emotion in this occasion as well. But I think just... Because of what happened against Inter, I think Napoli will be absolutely energised and motivated. And I think on the wings with Kvaratskhelia and Lozano or Politano, I just think they've got too much 
in the wide areas that are going to create at least minimum two or three or four clear-cut good chances. So, Despite being a Napoli fan, I always do make predictions, so I'm going to be so bold as to predict that Napoli win still. You mentioned the low goals for and the, the high goals conceded. It may not be as easy as we might expect it to be, but I'm thinking like a 2-0, 3-0 Napoli win. After the Sassuolo match, Stankovic dedicated the win to Sinisa Mihailovic, who lost his long battle with cancer on December 16th. You mentioned this is going to be an emotional match, and the reason for that is because just this morning we're recording on Friday the 6th, another cultural great Gianluca Vialli lost that same battle. Even though I don't have vivid memories of him playing with Mancini at Sampdoria, I was just too young, similar to how I don't have vivid memories of Maradona, And even though he went on to play for Juve and for Chelsea, the image that I will have of him, the lasting image that I will have of him is in the Blue Cercati. How will you remember Gianluca Vialli? It's quite an emotional day because I kind of woke up early in the morning to find out that he'd he'd passed away. I mean, he was actually my football hero, my favourite player of all time. And one of the big reasons that I got interested in Italian football was because of Vialli and I got interested in Italian football around the Italian 90 World Cup and we've got family friends in Italy and they sent me the Guerra Sportivo Calcio Italia annual at all the players and all the pictures and Vialli at Italian 90 was really expected to be the superstar and then Scalacci broke out and you know he uh, was top scorer in the tournament. Vialli did play his part in that World Cup where he provided some great assists and but I think for for Sampdoria, to me, he's the greatest Sampdoria forwards of all time. He's one of the great Italian forwards of all time. And just a great man, like charismatic, inspirational. He played such a big part in Italy winning European championships. He made lots of great speeches and very well liked. I mean, I guess all the, the tributes, it's very kind of telling when the tributes come from every single club in Serie A, almost every club in England. It was a great tribute from Graham Souness, who played with him at Sampdoria today. I did get quite emotional about it because I really, um, it's quite difficult to talk about because if you don't know someone personally or you don't have a, you know, he wasn't he wasn't my friend. I was never privileged enough to interview him at any point, which I would have loved. But he really made quite a big impact uh, on my life. Like when I was younger, I had a huge poster on my wall. And I would cut out pictures from magazines and newspapers. And I, had, I think I had like 100 pictures on my up my wall with him. And he was really my big hero. Um, so, yeah, pretty sad. And I think the Gradinata Suds, the Sampdoria Tifosi, will really create some amazing uh, choreography, I think, for him. And it will, be a, it will be quite an emotional occasion, I think, because he was such an icon for Sampdoria, for the city of Genoa, and he was well-liked by everyone. So I think that, I don't know if that will really have any part to play in the actual game itself, but I think the occasion should provide, you know, a modicum of motivation to Sampdoria at the very minimum, you know. And as you said, Mihailovic, really tragic, another former Sampdoria player as well, great free-kick taker. I mean, a pretty terrible time, you know, for some of the most famous players in the history of Italian football i spent a lot of time today reading articles about him obviously everybody was writing about it whether it was 
professional writers, you know, Nikki Bandini wrote about him for the guardian. You know, there's lots of stuff on social media, watching old videos, seeing posts from his colleagues, whether it was teammates of his when he was a player or current players who looked up to him as a coach. And I was really amazed at how consistent the focus was on just how great of a person he was and how great of a personality he had. And that's not to say that he wasn't a great footballer. He absolutely was. He was a serial winner. I mean, he scored 259 goals in his club career, another 16 for Italy. He's second only to his good friend Roberto Mancini on the Sampdoria all-time goal scorers list. The two of them led Sampdoria to their first Scudetto, their only Scudetto, which was the season after Napoli's second the season before that, they won the Cup Winners' Cup. The season after that, they won the Supercoppa. At Juventus, he won some more, another Scudetto, a UEFA Cup, a Champions League. I mean, he won more trophies at Chelsea. So this guy was just an insane winner. He just collected trophies everywhere he went. And obviously, he was part of Roberto Mancini's staff when Italy won the Euro. So for all of those people to be talking about what a great person he is, despite all of that success on the field, I think really speaks volumes about who he was as a person. So our prayers are certainly with Luca's family and friends, including Roberto Mancini, who's lost two close friends now in a couple of weeks. Okay, so that is where we'll leave it. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me today. Great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was my pleasure. So you can find Stephen on Twitter at S. Kazovitz. You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5. And you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at Forza Napoli Pod. I will be back soon to review this match. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre. Podcast Network.